we walk the towpath between canal and river. Blue light lies in the shallow bowl. Pink washes through loch and sky. Five westering geese honk like schoolboys. Light thins itself until stars show through. listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. Hello, my name is Jennifer Williams. I am the program manager at the Scottish Poetry Library. And uh, as I was just saying to my poet I have here with me, this is my very first podcast interview of 2016. And I'm so pleased that it's with the poet William Bonner. Uh, I know William because we did the NLIT in creative writing at the University of Glasgow together a few years back. And it's been uh, really wonderful to see Billy at various poetry events over the years since then. And I was especially pleased just recently when he appeared at the library as a poet reading at one of our events and he was reading from his beautiful new pamphlet that's just come out which I'll tell you more about in a moment. First I'll just start by giving a little bit of background about William. Uh, he was born in Greenock in 1953 and grew up in the neighboring town of Port Glasgow. You moved to Edinburgh and worked in Edinburgh for a while. You went to the Edinburgh University and trained as a teacher. You were also on the editorial staff of uh, St. Crestus magazine, which was a wonderful uh, Scottish, yeah. uh, important Scottish poetry magazine. Did it publish prose as well, or was it just poetry? No, it was, it was more an arts and literature magazine, oh, okay. so it was a wide, wide variety of things. Okay. So um, poetry was certainly not the main thing. Mm. Um, a wide variety of articles in culture and philosophy yeah. and literature. And it yeah. ran for a long time. Long time, it? long, long time. Because yeah. I know yeah. it's still going when I was. Um, yeah, no, I, I don't remember when it finally finished, but it couldn't have been, it yeah. must have been into this century yeah, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So you taught English for a while and then you actually went on to become an educational psychologist. You later did the MLIT with distinction at Glasgow and your poems and stories have been widely published in newspapers, magazines, anthologies and also on the radio. You've been on The Verb, which is very impressive. I, I think that's a fabulous program. And in 2004, you published the pamphlet collection Frostburn Steel with Dreadful Night Press. And then Offering uh, just came out last year. And that was actually the result of your winning the James Kirkup Memorial Prize. And the book was actually published by Red Squirrel Press. And also, I wanted to mention that you have been last year shortlisted for the New Writers Award, which is a great um, honor as well. I know that's a, it's a very competitive award, so it's wonderful mm -hmm. to appear on the shortlist for that. That's a little bit about you, and I'm sure much more will come up as we talk, but first of all, it would be lovely to hear, uh, I think we're gonna hear the title poem from the yeah. book to start. Yeah, title poem. Offering. The old man found us on his doorstep burnt dry, exhausted. Motioning us to stay, he climbed his fertile terrace, a shoebox under his arm. Returning, he urged us in. One dusty room, 
marble floor, whitewashed walls, a small table covered in bright plastic, an iron bedstead and horsehair mattress, a tiny unglazed window of miraculous blue beyond paint. We sat and watched him take peaches and tomatoes from the shoebox. Washing the fruit, he sliced it, tore bread in half, filled glasses with cold artesian water and set the meal before us, offering flaky sea salt. The unlabeled bottle puzzled us, so he poured a little oil on his palm, but my stern northern spirit refused. Shrugging politely, the old man oiled his hands and wrists, gestured we should eat, manjari, and we ate, like graceless northern gods, too young to imagine how we might receive. I just think it's so utterly visceral, this poem. Mm. Whenever I hear you read it, it it honestly feels like I'm having this experience. It's so, uh, it's so sensual the way you've conjured the entire setting. And, you know, I think it's, especially I remember the first time I heard it, the flaky sea salt, it was that word. And, the, you know, I actually felt like I could feel it and taste it on my tongue. Do you, well, I guess in a way, I was, it, it felt to me like it was a real experience for mm -hmm. you. It, does it come from a... Well, uh, yes, it does, in the sense that something like this happened to me and a friend. Uh, we were hitchhiking and through Europe and we were going along, I think, the Ligurian coast. Um, not knowing what we were doing, it, I, I think they had this very romantic idea that when we looked at the map, you could go along the Ligurian coast and, you know, dotted along there would be fishing villages and we'd, we'd be able to go to these fishing villages and eat very cheaply and, and so on. But of course that's not the case, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's more or less built up all the way along them. There are beaches and headlands and things like that. Uh, and, um, and it's very busy with traffic. And uh, we'd been struggling to get a lift, but I think what had happened was, was that we had gone onto a beach the previous day, but completely naively, we were teenagers. And uh, sunbathed all day without any protection in the full sun, so we were completely... Oh no! Yeah. <laughs> Really? Scottish boys oh, in the absolutely, absolutely <laughs> dreadful. You know, we're lobsters, oh. uh, beginning to blister and so on, and, and being sick, and 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 we were trying to we were trying to travel. We couldn't get any lifts, and we were walking through this area where there were terrace gardens on one side and the sea and outbuildings on the other, and that's exactly what we did. We we sat down just to shelter in what seemed like a doorway of what seemed like an abandoned building uh, and this old, old man came along and, uh, and that's what happened. Yeah. At least that's what I think happened. I think a big essence of this is that this is almost 40 years ago, so really, in fact it's more than 40 years ago, um, did this really happen or did it really happen in this way and does that matter? So I think there's a mythical aspect to it in the way that memories become mythical and that uh, I'm very interested in this aspect of memory that memory uh, isn't you know things stored away somewhere in a, some sort of filing cabinet or whatever in, in our minds but actually it's constructed each time we bring it forward and uh, 
and therefore I've kind of consolidated this memory by writing this poem and in a sort of way that uh, you know Walter Scott and so on consolidated the border ballads by writing them down um, so that sort of flux gets stopped because you put it into text but at the same time that I think there's something worthwhile and useful in capturing, capturing that sort of mythic aspect of it and that sense of it's it's very, um, even all these words you've used mm. to describe it, the miraculous blue and the details like the iron bedstead and the horsehair mattress, they almost have that, almost the symbolic quality, the way you describe objects in a dream, for instance, yeah. it, or, you know, I, I see it again as a, you know, you could almost see this as a kind of symbolist painting with mm. all the objects very clearly uh, you know, I can see that window, that blue window, and and the the fruit and vegetables all all so clearly, and yeah. uh, so that sense of having, you know, and again the way you're talking about memory is so interesting. It's it's I've thought of of dreams in that way, but it's mm-hmm. interesting, so interesting to think of memory in that way as well. But that that the there's a there's something imaginative and creative about the way after it's happened we recreate each yeah. time when we access it. That's a lovely way to It also made me think about, I think it was a, a Susan Sontag um, book talking about photography and mm-hmm. this idea that if we do have a photograph of something, say a holiday snap, mm-hmm. that it can come to replace our memories of yes. the trip, which is yeah. an interesting yeah. trick, but it's almost how a poem of a memory of a trip could come to replace the actual memory. Yeah, I think that's very true. And I think, I think your, your, your comment about symbolist painting or paint, painting of the Mediterranean and so on, Picasso, uh, that, that kind of symbolism is, I, I think is kind of behind, behind mm-hmm. the, the poem as well. But I think another thing there is the old, the old myth that you treat strangers, travellers, people at your door, you treat them well because they could be a, either an angel or be Christ himself. Yes. Um, now, there's obviously there's sort of two aspects to that. You know, you know, of course, you, should, you, treat, you, treat, you should treat people well, but there's, there seems to be sort of a bit in the, the, the other side of that, that uh, if you don't treat them well and it turns out to be Christ, then what happens to you? you, know? yeah. you is it eternal damnation for that? You know? So there's a, but that, that would be very much you know, a northern Protestant view of that. And maybe that wouldn't be a Southern Catholic view. Um, so you know, I think there's that's one of the things I'm trying to get at. There is this this enormous contrast between a Northern Protestant sensibility and a Southern Catholic sensibility. The, the warm sunshine, olive oil, uh, that sensuality uh, yeah. that is perhaps denied by um, Scottish Presbyterian culture. Yeah, because it's even you know I think. When I had first heard it, I was envisaging actually a sort of maybe a couple on holiday mm-hmm. who were having that moment when you know, maybe you're a bit tired or you know run out of mm-hmm. things to talk to one another about and you've just sat down for a rest and then someone comes and very warmly offers a thing to you and that using symbols and mythology to distance yourself from the kind of mm-hmm. eye in the poem. But at the same time, there is this real self-referential sort of it, and it does feel a bit, it's interesting how the eye is almost able to be critical of the eye in the mm. poem, that it's, yeah. it does feel a bit like my stern northern spirit and mm. the graceless northern gods, that there's a critical tone in, in that 
it's almost as if in looking back on it, you, you feel maybe slightly regretful that you weren't able to feel the olive oil on your palm yes, and absolutely. to kind of completely relax into yeah. that, what is being offered there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, that's, that's one of the essences of the poem that, um, it, it was so difficult to not to accept the generosity, but to enter into the spirit of the generosity. Mm. Yeah, I think that was the, mm. that was the main thing. That, yeah, that's uh, that last line, too young to imagine how we might receive. Mm. Which again is such an interesting, I think it's a, it's a beautiful word because it, it has all sorts of implications about, you know, I think there's all the, it makes me think having been raised a good Catholic girl <laughs> of the, you know, receiving the, um, yes. the body of Christ on your tongue and that mm. being a kind of, but again, something strange always struck me, I think, as uh, uh, something very weird about the idea of eating someone's mm-hmm. body, you know, mm-hmm. but that and taking Christ into you and that you having to be sort of pure to receive him into you, mm-hmm. all, all that's quite strange yeah. sort of language, in, in, I think, when you're a child to try and get your head around. But that contrast of, yeah, and I, but then thinking about it in terms of love and, and sensuality mm-hmm. as well, you know, how when you're young, I think you want so much to love and be loved, mm-hmm. but you don't often know how to do it. How, how to attain that? <laughs> yes. Absolutely. How do you get there? How do you get beyond? How do you get beyond yourself? Mm-hmm. Is the problem the self? Is the problem, um, and that enormous self consciousness of youth, which doesn't ever entirely go away, of course. But yeah. uh, you know, it's how you, it's how you you manage to get beyond yourself, get over yourself, as as you Americans would say. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Very difficult, and I think that, as you're saying, the the, the, the holy wafer and that, that kind of thing. I think there's again, there'd be more of a Protestant problem with that, even though Protestants, of course, do do take communion and, and, and take the wafer, they wouldn't um, receive it in a passive way, they would, they would take part in, in communion as Protestants would see it, they'd take part in a much more uh, active way, uh, and would see Catholics as being extremely passive in that, mm-hmm. in that ritual. So again, you know, the, the, there are cultural difficulties set up that, that I'm trying to I'm trying to explore in the poem. Yeah. Do you? It's it seems to me through this poem that you mm-hmm. do, but do you find that poetry is a um, place where you can explore these kind of questions about psychology and belief systems mm-hmm. and and so on and so forth. I, I hope it is. Um, I think it's it's more to do with, uh, well, I, I suppose it's to do with what I'm trying to do in my own head, what I'm trying to sort out for myself rather than sorting that out for for Scottish culture or any, any sort of wide, wider thing. Um, so if these, if these issues come up for me, then yes, I do try and deal with them. Um, and of course, if you're writing, that's what, that's what comes through. I mean, as you know yourself, you don't always know what you're writing about until you've done it, yeah. uh, and then and then you see what's going on there, and then perhaps you can you can shape the poem more towards that. But uh, really, um, I very very seldom set out to to write something about something, um, and usually it's terrible if I do do that. <laughs> do you have what is your practice like? Do you write the sort of every day, or when when the inspiration strikes you? I go through periods of writing every day. Last um, yeah, the last late summer into the autumn, I, I was doing that last year, 
and then things happen and that gets disrupted and then there's periods of times where I'm doing other things. It depends also what I'm working on. And uh, I've been trying to work on a long poem for quite some time now. And I've returned to it again. I last, I last worked on it in the summer, so I've returned to it again just this week, actually. And uh, trying to get some something done with that. So that's that can be quite frustrating in a way because I spent quite a lot of time working in that and I wasn't producing other poems. So I didn't have anything to send out. And you have this thing where you begin to worry that you're not publishing, you're not you know, getting stuff out in, into magazines. So that's why I then reverted to well, let's write something every day and let's build up a body of poems I can then work on and begin to get out to, to magazines. So it kind of comes and goes. It might be nice to hear mm. the next poem because I think that's going to bring mm -hmm. up a whole other interesting uh, topic that we can talk about. Okay, this is uh, McDermott on Balsa. I believe that's how it's said in Shetlantic. I, I would be intend to say from the spelling Walsey, but uh, uh, in Shetland it's Walsa. McDermott on Walsa. Black on white cries this boat, grief house. Fenced and nettled, they pitch a ocean criss in a mutchkin and stod the key. Laid your path we crush red granite forby. On this Sisyphean hill they've pegged you. Trig and snort. Fegs, Chris, ways to blame them. Unskeely your cell, ye admired them at the peace, the fishing, but they cotton to your game. Kiddo and warts had ye rise for your bunk like a silk. They kent ye for a poor being, we didn't they work they could name, but gaed about in a kilt and hobbed we knobs at Simbister Hoose rather than swash we fishers and lilt we crofters. Linger don't linger twenty minutes, and imagined three days of desert, no just Christ of the hilt. Yet you hung on in the same. Nine year you were hobbled in the lear yon quarry, yearded frae history and pain, while she fell and rose, ranged out to yont the limits of earth, sea, and lift, hammering sang frae stains. This brings up all sorts of interesting uh, language, um, mm. don't want to say issues, but you know, wonderful <laughs> topics that we can yeah. talk about. Of course, being from America myself, um, I'm no expert in Scots language, and this poem is, it's kind of, most of it is, is Scots, and then there's actually Shetlandic words embedded mm -hmm. in the Scots as well, isn't it? So we should say to those listening, I'm assuming this is in the book, so if it you buy the pamphlet, you can see <laughs> this. But the Shetlandic words are footnoted, so you would get the... There are four, four of those which have yeah. sort of a gloss or definition at the bottom of the page. I think, though, I mean, I, I, I understand that it's, it's very much debated, but there are, mm -hmm. it's not that there's necessarily one Scots language... No. So I'd love to hear you talk a little... I mean, we can get on to... Because also this poem mm. is about something very specific and a very particular poet. But, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear you talk a bit about your decisions when it comes to writing in Scots and this particular poem and how that relates to the subject of the poem. Well, in a sense, this poem had to be in Scots because it's about Hugh McDermott, whose, whose, whose real name is Christopher Murray Grieve, 
and I'd be very cheeky. I, 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 I um, address him as Chris, which was his, <laughs> his familiar name to his friends and family. But of course, if I'd ever met him in real life, I'd never dared to address <laughs> him in that manner. I think, I think there's a wee bit to say about McDermott himself, and just, just in my personal terms as well, in that I, I, I didn't go to university when I was 24, and I started doing Scottish literature uh, in second year, so this was 1978, so October 1978. McDermott had died the previous month, Gosh. and I was just beginning to discover him, and I remember uh, being lectured by Professor John McQueen at Edinburgh, and him talking about how odd it was that he was lecturing on McDermott and McDermott was no longer around to argue with what he was saying about him. <laughs> and and that's, that's a big thing about McDermott, he was so polemical. And he was a huge figure, he was, he's, he's a colossus. Uh, even though he was, he was a very small man, but he was a colossus. And, um, and, and I think, actually I think of him more like he, he's an ocean. Uh, and you can, you can sail across that ocean. Yeah, you can certainly do that but you'll spend more than a lifetime plumbing the depths. There's so much there, um, including so much rubbish. There's an awful lot of rubbish. <laughs> and, 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 but there's so much sublime, wonderful poetry as well. Also much like an ocean. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. And, and so I encountered at that stage in my life, for the first time, McDermott and the early lyrics, which are just, they are sublime. So, and that was, that was me really, really getting to grips for the first time in my life with, with Scottish um, poetry. I'd read a, a bit before that, but this was when you really get to grips with it. And poetry in Scots. And of course, McDermott wrote in what he called synthetic Scots. So it was a Scots dredged from dictionaries. It, it knew no bounds in terms of geography and it knew no bounds in terms of time. And he constructed this Scots. So I've tried to write in this poem in McDermott's synthetic Scots. So it isn't the Scots I would I would speak to my brothers, for instance. And it's it's the it's very much a literary Scots that, that McDermott uh, invented. And so and I've incorporated I've even incorporated some words and phrases that are specific to well-known poems by McDermott. And it was quite. Um, you know much more about this than me, but it, it's it's it still seems to me that this is always quite hotly contested mm. or debated. Yeah. This and it was a very political act in a way to Absolutely. to yeah. choose to write in this mm -hmm. way and yeah. you know important politically in Scotland as as much as it is a, a kind of well, literary invention. Yeah, this was all hand in glove with with with. Uh, with politics and McDermott of course was one of the, the founder members of the National Party of Scotland which became the SNP in, in due course. Um, but of course he was, a, he was a hugely controversial figure, he was expelled from the Nationalists for being a Communist and he was expelled from the Communists for being a Nationalist. <laughs> so you know, as he put himself, I'll be where what extremes meet, it's only way I can to yeah. dodge the cursed conceit of being Richt that damns the vast majority of men. So, you know, he was, he was um, uh, you know, uh, a contrarian, uh, a very, very difficult man in public life. Apparently, uh, personally, he was, he was a very nice man, but uh, <laughs> in public life he was a contrarian uh, and a polemicist. And it seems to me none of this would matter a jot. We wouldn't remember any of this if the, if the poetry wasn't so wonderful. 
that he actually, yes, the, 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 the construction of synthetic Scots is a political act, an overt political act, but he wrote so well in it. Uh, particularly the early lyrics and particularly um, the drunk man looks at the thistle, you know, his long poem. Uh, so none of this would matter at all if those poems weren't so wonderful. And that's why I immerse myself in to continue the water metaphor uh, where in 1978-79, sort of around about there, uh, and was overwhelmed by it. It was it was un unbelievably wonderful. But but <clears throat> but I think the thing was that McDermott was too dominant at that stage, and uh, we we mentioned St. Crastus earlier on. It seemed to me that everybody who all the all the postgraduates who were working in St. Crastus were all doing thesis on, on McDermott. So you know. McDermott was was an uh, an obsession, so so there was a so I think there was a bit of a problem for a wee while. And why? I mean, why? Why? Because he was such a kind of exciting figure. Yeah, because he was so dominant. Because because people um, felt they had to write in uh, some more polemical ways and, and that kind of thing. And it took I think it took a wee while for that to to work its way through. I think the influence is still there to some extent. But um, it's been being ameliorated quite a bit, and people are now writing. There's like, now a huge variety of writing in Scotland that uh, you know. I think the state of Scottish poetry is excellent at the moment. Uh, so yeah, the influence the influence was was overwhelming then. However, do you quite enjoy writing in Scots? Does it feel quite natural? Do you often do it? I mean, you you've got certainly got more more yeah. poems in Scots. What I'm leaning towards is incorporating Scots words. Into oh, poems, okay. rather rather than writing just entirely in Scots, I do sometimes write in Scots, but more of that. And I think it's something that, say, Kathleen Jamie does extremely well, yeah. extremely well. Uh, and I think that's more true to how I speak. In mm. any case, I and mean, we've always got this problem of how do you produce poetry that is close to natural speech, um, or is true to, true to your own language. And I think that's truer to my own language than, than uh, writing purely in Scots. Uh, which I've never really spoken. I mean, when I, <coughs> I used to study Scots language at the university as well, and the revelation there was I was rediscovering so many words that my parents and my grandparents used that I, I had never used, you know. Um, so that was, that was odd. That was, that was an odd experience as well. I'm really interested in what you just said about this mm -hmm. idea of trying to, to write in poetry in mm -hmm. your natural mm -hmm. language, because that's such a good question, isn't it? Yeah. Because I think... There's often this assumption that poetry has its own special kind yeah. of language, or that yeah. the right kind of language for a poem is somehow different than mm -hmm. the kind of language we communicate in in other ways in everyday life. But, but actually, there's something really special, isn't there, about when a poem can still do all the magical things a poem is capable of, but be using not necessarily the language of the everyday, but the language that is natural to the either the character in the poem or the person writing the poem. I, I think that's absolutely right. I'm, I'm interested in, in dramatic aspects of poetry, that, that if you can get a dramatic voice in there, it's hugely effective. <coughs> and, it, and that has to be natural, um, or as natural as you can make it. I think the other aspect is it, natural language, but perhaps um, what, what becomes extremely important is the form or structure. And I, I'm not talking about that in terms of uh, this is quite a formal poem, actually, the McDermott poem, in that actually, it's another, it's another wee joke within it, in a sense, in that I stole the form 
from uh, from Philip Larkin. Ah. Uh, I don't know, I don't know if it's from a specific poem, but it's certainly Larkin-esque. <laughs> and and of course Larkin hated the Scots and probably <laughs> loathed McDermott. So you know. Uh... Right back at you. <laughs> <laughs> so and that seemed appropriate for for this, but. You know, most of the time I don't write with rhyme or, or, or in a subformal stanza form like that. But I think the form that you choose or the form that the, the poem begins to have and you then, you then shape up is extremely important if your language is going to be as plain or, or as everyday as you can make it. Um, that's then crucial. And do you, this idea of being able to have characters and poems. I mean, how do you approach that, this idea of <clears throat> narrative and character do you, and drama? I mean, these are terms you mm-hmm. might hear, for instance, in, in theatre quite often, mm-hmm. but it's, you know, I think it, it can make a, for a very engaging mm-hmm. poem, because these are things, that's why it works so well in the theatre, isn't it, that that um, it's, it's these aspects of storytelling mm-hmm. that we relate to um, uh, because it happens all the time in our lives, yeah. and and um, yeah, it's interesting when that appears mm-hmm. in poetry. Well, I think narrative is is absolutely essential to us. I mean, narrative is. I mean, memory is narrative, um, and and we tell we tell the story of our lives. We tell it to ourselves. I mean, we 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 construct a story of our lives in order to kind of make sense of it. It's nonsense, of course. You know? it's, it's highly biased. You know, it puts us in a good light most of the time. Or, but you know, that we we have to do that in order to make sense to impose some sort of order. In terms of in terms of uh, narrative voice or, or character voice, I mean, I think that that can produce some really really powerful poems. And I suppose the best example in in the book here is uh, we're not going to read it today, but. Um, it's a, it's a wee suite of poems called the Johannesburg Quintet. And, and really, um, I suppose the, the final poem is kind of in my voice, if you like. That's, that's a sort of lyric poem in that. It's a series of five poems. But there are other voices within that, um, one of which is the voice of, uh, uh, of an emigrant Scot in South Africa uh, who'd been there for a very, very long time. And really the poem is more or less... A transcription of what this man said to me. Um, so it's more or less a found poem. I mean, of course, I've shaped it and dramatised it to a certain extent, um, but it's it's recapturing his voice, letting him say it, and then he says so much. In a very short poem, he says an awful lot about the whole empire experience of empire, what empire is about. And it's. You know, as writers, and again, I think it's interesting because I, I suspect people are more accustomed to hearing, for instance, or, or being more comfortable with the idea of a prose writer mm-hmm. giving voice to characters and using mm-hmm. their imagination to inhabit characters. And I think sometimes people somehow see poets as uh, these, are, you know, vessels of truth and, and that they don't make anything up. And it can be a bit shocking to people when they, <laughs> when they find out that poets can also uh, imagine characters yes. and inhabit them and give voice to different, yeah. different characters. Um, uh, I, I've heard some people sort of, you know, can be quite shocked depending on the kind of character a poet is imagining themselves into. But, but I think it's so... I feel very protective of that right of mm-hmm. the poet. And, and actually, it's, 
you know, all the great poetry throughout history can can show that. Uh, so it's it's act, it's a very important part of the tradition. But um, yeah, it's funny. It's funny how I think poets are sometimes sometimes seem to be, you know, function in a slightly different way. Yeah. But yeah, I mean that whole idea of the persona poem and so forth. I think it's it's a whole other other realm. But it's mm-hmm. you know even in this poem, you're you're kind of having this. You know this imaginary conversation well, with your buddy Chris and <laughs> someone made comments. I'm getting, I'm doing all the talking. He's not getting to say anything back. You know, which is. Maybe there's a, another poem to be written, which is your imagined version of his reply. Aye, McDermott answers roundly. Do you feel your identity as a Scottish poet? I mean, is that important to you? Do you feel you carry a kind of responsibility in some way uh, as, as a Scottish poet? <laughs> no, no, no responsibility whatsoever. <clears throat> not, not, in, not in that sense. I mean, I think I have a responsibility to try and write well and try and write honestly, mm-hmm. but not any responsibility as a Scottish poet as such. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think there is such a thing as Scottish poetry, and I think I'm part of that. And... and I couldn't be otherwise um, because of my upbringing and my background. I mean, my, my first encounter with poetry was that you know, there weren't many books in my house when I was growing up and it was only one volume of poetry and you can guess what it was. It was the complete works of Robert Burns. Oh. And from <laughs> the age of nine, I was reading that and loving it, absolutely loving it. So again, it's, it's, it's almost all in Scots, so I was absorbing that Scots. I didn't always understand it, but... I could get the music, I could get the rhythm. My father had, had some knowledge of Burns, mainly because my father was a, was a mason, a Freemason. Um, and, you know, the, the Burns, Burns himself was a Freemason, so, so Burns is a big part of Freemasonry in Scotland, and they always have the Burns suppers and so on, so people would know that. Reading Burns from, from really quite a young age was my introduction to poetry, not just Scots poetry. So uh, I couldn't be anything else but a Scots poet. But that's what I am. It's not something I carry a fly for. Yeah. Um, Billy, it's just been such a pleasure getting to speak with you today. Thank, Thank you. you so much. I feel like this was a long overdue conversation, so I'm really glad uh, to be having it with you. And, and especially, I think, on this occasion or shortly following this occasion of your award-winning collection being published. Um, it's such a, a beautiful pamphlet set also by the wonderful Jerry Cambridge, Indeed, I believe. Yeah. But yeah, it's a lovely volume and uh, you can come and have a read of it in the Scottish Poetry Library, but I do recommend going online and ordering it from Red Squirrel Press. And also, I am very curious about this long poem you've been working on, so we'll look mm. forward to, uh-huh. to hopefully getting to read that sometime in future when it's ready. Well, uh, we'll see. We'll see how it goes. I think it will come out at about um, five, six hundred lines. And um, what I'm trying to do, I'm trying. One of one of my obsessions, if you like, because it dominated my childhood, is shipbuilding. Um, and the, my father, all of my male relatives, um, my older brother, all all worked in shipbuilding all my life. In fact, even some of my female relatives, you know, during the war and so on. One of my aunties was a was a welder, um, so, <clears throat> and the the shipyards, the, the the physicality of the shipyards was a dominant thing in my childhood. Um, you couldn't ignore them. 
the noise, the, the size of the ships. You would you could walk along the street in Port Glasgow and the prow of a ship would be lowering over the top of you. It's in, in a sense it's a kind of gift. I I my experience of working in the shipyards was very brief. I worked there for one, one summer between my fourth and fifth year at school. So I can hardly have said to have served served my time, as they say. Um, but the whole thing is is fascinating. And it's kind of mixed up with my very troubled relationship with my father as well. So there's you know there's a, there's a lot of issues to iron out Content there. there. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so what I've been writing is a kind it's a kind of autobiographical piece, but it's split into two bits. And, and one bit is it's me, sort of, as a six going on seven year old. And at the time there had been a problem um, in the shipyards of Port Glasgow, I think what, what the burners, which is one of the trades, had gone on strike. And my father, who was a plater, was therefore laid off during that period. And uh, he had gone to work in Brightling Sea, which is a tiny wee uh, seaside town in Essex, where his brother was already working and had a house and had his family there and so on. And they worked in a, a, a very small shipyard in Brightling Sea. <coughs> and we almost moved there. So, you know, I could have been an Essex boy instead of a Glasgow boy, as it were. So part of it is about that the time when I, I went with my younger brother and my mother to visit uh, and how that visit went, because it's my first experience of being outside of Scotland. And the other part of it is me going back as an adult to see Bridling Sea, have a look around and to try and figure out what was going on, um, both in terms of um, the actual economic situation at time, the historical situation at time, um, but also in terms of my family, what was going on and what were the tensions and what were the, how were decisions made and so on. And of course I can't, I can't know any of this, I can't work any of this out for sure because the witnesses aren't around. Uh, so I, I have to explore and see how that, how that goes. So that's, that's the long poem. Yes, tell us right. how this came about. Well this poem is uh, it's called Nerdius, which I suppose is a made-up word to mean people who celebrate Nerdy or New Year's Day. Ah. Um, and it said, it was actually, again it's, it's based on a real incident, uh, New Year's Day 2010. Yes, I think it was 2010. <coughs> and if you remember that winter was horrendous. It was really, really severe winter. And uh, the part of the world I know very well, Midder uh, where the, the, the Crinning Canal and the River Ad flows down, it flows past Dunad, and Dunad, of course, is the, uh, the fortress where the, the original kings of Scots were crowned uh, in the old kingdom of Dalida. And we're very close to by um, uh, the valley of uh, Kilmartin Glen, which is, you know, evidence of habitation going back five, six thousand years, Neolithic times, and all these stone circles and, and uh, burial sites and so on. So it's a hugely rich place, and, and in a sense it's a cradle of Scotland, in the, in the sense that it was the initial Scots Kingdom. And it's a very, it's a very special place. So the, the setting is going for a walk on New Year's Day 2010, uh, where the place is absolutely frozen, but it's a lovely day and it's just getting towards the, the end of the day <coughs> and it's the kind of thing that, that happens in a, a place like that. 
Can I say before you read it, thank you so much for spending this time with me. It's well, been such a pleasure. Well, th thank you for, for inviting me. I've, I've really enjoyed it, Jennifer. This is Nernius. At Bellinox Bridges, the ad meets the tide. It's spilled, frozen on salted moss. Last week's snow still silts Moynivore with crystal. We walk the towpath between canal and river. Blue light lies in the shallow bowl. Pink washes through loch and sky. Five westering geese honk like schoolboys. Light thins itself until stars show through. You say, what a strange thing holding hands. I, still strange, still a thinning. podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live and find us on Facebook.